When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Dive in on playoff. Gotta watch the tape. Doug Maurice, Ellis Williams, Scott Patsko. Man, get fired up Sunday night from Steelers. Here's how we're doing it. We take... Two things, and we do half a pod led by Ellis, half a pod led by Scott. You know it by now. You've been listening all season. And for this wild card game between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cleveland Browns, Scott and Ellis are each going to take three Browns on a side of the ball and talk about why they're so important for this game. So in the second half, Scott's going to do that for the defense. But in the first half, Ellis Williams is going to do that for the Browns offense. So Ellis, dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. First, I want to say... Us at Cleveland.com, we've done a great job all week avoiding the the playoff bit there that Doug led with. I think on our picks pod yesterday, Eric, our guy Eric, who did a great job, made a playoff drop. So I think Eric's rubbing off a little bit on Doug. So it, it is late in the weekend, and we're getting fired up here for the playoffs, and that's exactly what we're about to do. And with that being said, the offensive side of the ball, of course, is going to be the driving engine behind how the Cleveland Browns decide their playoff fade heading to Pittsburgh in a playoff game for the first time since 2002. I want to get this disclaimer out of the way. I have three players selected who I think are key guys, pivotal guys, guys who must have big games for the Browns to be victorious. Baker Mayfield is not on my list, and he's not on my list for this reason. Simply put, Baker Mayfield must play well for the Browns to succeed. I don't think there's a, a, a team in the NFL whose quarterback could play poorly and they could win a playoff game. Am I mistaken by that, guys? Like – it's playoff football, right? Right. I mean, it's one of those, even like, I think people underestimate like how important Ryan Tannehill is for the Titans. And part of the reason they're so good is that like Ryan Tannehill is like incredibly competent and also dynamic at times. So like if Ryan Tannehill stinks, Derek Henry's not enough to win your playoff game all by yourself. So I agree, Ellis. Yeah, exactly. This is where we're at in the league. And to be clear, Baker's got to remain pinpoint accurate in the red zone. He can't turn the ball over and he's got to take the free yards with his feet. And, of course, be precise on third down. It's that simple. And I want the record to show I expect him to do that. He's he's had the second half of the season that has been impressive, and I don't see why that's going to change after seeing what he did against Baltimore. And then Pittsburgh last week, even though a few guys didn't play, he's consistently shown it in the second half of the season. So all expectations, Baker plays a Baker-style game, and these three players are going to be pivotal. Can so I interrupt? Can I interrupt here for a second, Ellis? Because beyond the fact that obviously quarterbacks have to play well, I do think if Baker was still in an area where it was like week to week, we didn't know how he was going to play. Even though it was obvious, I think we'd have to talk about him. I think part of why you're not talking about him is we honestly have reached the the point with Baker where 
you assume he's going to be at least kind of good. Now, maybe very good, but I don't, we don't have to spend time talking about what if he throws three picks in the first half? Cause like, that's not where anybody is right now. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And perhaps the Browns aren't even in the playoffs. If we were having that conversation or this would just be a completely different offense, they'd be winning in very different ways. If Baker still was turning it over. So we can talk Baker all off season we want, but yes, he will be good. And if he hits another level, as I'm getting the players on the list, that will change how they play. So to no one's surprise here, probably my first player is Nick Chubb. I've been pounding the drum for five weeks straight now that the Browns need to run the football some more. And I've got even more data to back that up. So six times this year, Nick Chubb has earned 18 carries or more. The Browns are 6-0 in those games. It would be 7-0, but Chubb was hurt and early in the Dallas game. He had six carries for 43 yards when he got hurt. That's a 7.1 average. The Browns rushed for 300 yards that night. They were going to you know, that was going to be another Nick Chubb 20 carry victory. So 18 more carries, the Browns win. It's, it's really that simple because when you're running Nick Chubb, it doesn't have to be just against the bad defenses. You can point out the, the Jacksonville defense or the, the Houston defense. I, I understand that, but let's be clear that he's gotten the job done against good defenses as well. Not just last week against Pittsburgh in week three, he had 108 yards and two touchdowns against a Washington defense that has been consistently one of the top units in football all year long. It's the reason they're in the playoffs versus Philly. He had 20 carries for 114 yards and you may be laughing at the Philadelphia Eagles and what they became, but still sneakily, the Eagles are the 13th best uh, run defense, according to DVOA. So I know I sound like a broken record, but Nick Chubb getting between 18 and 25 carries. I'd really love to see him hit that 20 carry mark and see where they're at halfway through the fourth quarter and even flirt with 25 carries, but putting this offense on his shoulders to me is the, and it's why I wanted to lead with Nick Chubb. It's why I started with Nick Chubb. I think that is the the formula to the Browns. Cause you have to, we, we're going to get probably get into a discussion about the offensive philosophy of how the Browns can win this game. And to me, it's, you got to prepare for a, a close, grind it out type of game the game plan in Tennessee was crystal clear get a lead kick them early and we'll figure the rest out they don't have the 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 firepower to do that this week and a lot of that falls on not having Joel Batonio I don't think you can drop Baker Mayfield back 30 35 times with an interior pressure that could be vulnerable because your left guard is a third or fourth stringer while the other team has Cam Hayward so the, oh, taking the ball to Baker Mayfield's hands, not because he's not capable, but because of circumstance and allowing Nick Chubb to run outside zone, which I found it really interesting uh, yesterday when both Alex Van Pelt and uh, Baker Mayfield talked about how well Pittsburgh does at uh, eliminating the bootleg. This is something we talked about the first time the Steelers played. We've talked about it multiple times on this podcast since. And then finally yesterday, it's discussed in a, in a, in a presser and they said exactly what we've been saying on this podcast. They, the Steelers play so far uphill that those wide zone yards are there for that cutback lane. I wrote a story about it this morning. Nick Chubb, 18, 20 carries, exploit that cutback lane. There's free yards there. And for some reason, last week just seemed a little fishy. Why was Nick Chubb not playing as much? It, it seemed a little odd. I think this is finally the, the week for circumstance and game plan that they unleash Nick Chubb. I would just like to make clear that it wasn't that Ellis found it interesting that Baker Mayfield and Alex Van Pelt talked about that this week. It's that he sent out a text to the text insiders and was like, 
Finally, I knew it. I knew it. They finally admit it. I've been on this thing for half a season and finally the players. But that is that is what got to watch the tape does for you. Ellis and Scott will tell you the things about the Browns that the players and coaches won't even admit to themselves. So that's what the Browns insiders got in their phones from Ellis on Thursday. Scott, where are you on this? Where are you on Chubb? Not just being important, but like this many carries, man. What if Alex Van Pelt secretly been against this whole sharing the load thing? And he's all about, he's just going along with whatever Stefanski's building up this week. And he, he's going to feed Chubb 30 times. Scott, I'm here for it. One week mutiny. That's right. What? <laughs> just throw everything yeah. on 35 Emotions cream hunt into the, you know, out wide on every play. And it's, yeah, uh, it's totally out. Of, I, no, it, it makes totally, it makes sense because, the Steelers defense is built around that pass rush and you want to eliminate situations where you're in third and long, you need to get that run game going and gain yards on first and second down. So the Steelers don't have a chance to blitz as much and they don't have a chance to rush uh, Baker as much. He's not dropping back and trying to hit, you know, passes further downfield because it's third and long all the time. Uh, So yeah, you look, Nick Chubb should be fresh. I think what you called Stefanski, the fresh maker, or maybe I did that early in the season. This is where that all pays off. You know, these guys have been, been kind of, you know, sharing carries all season. This is where it should pay off. And you you should be able to uh, give him maybe more carries than he's normally have uh, throughout the season. And it just, it makes total sense as far as a strategic, uh, from a strategic standpoint, Uh, it's just whether or not you can actually make that happen because you are missing Joel Batonio. So I guess the, there's two things I'm interested in here, Ellis. One is you are making a distinction between the run game and Nick Chubb. You're not saying the tailbacks need to carry it 35 times. You're talking about Nick Chubb specifically. Why is that? Why is it that we've talked about and Scott has nicknamed the duo? Scott has another post uh, today on Friday about ranking this this Chubb and Hunt running back duo among the best in, in Brown's history. We've talked about him in tandem all year. Why is this discussion not a tandem discussion? Yep, I'll pick up two key reasons, and I'll pick up right where I left off. The first is the wide zone. Kareem Hunt has run plenty of wide zone this year, of course, but there is not a better cutback runner in football than Nick Chubb. Browns fans know it. It's been documented. That is what that play is designed for. And the combination of that being one of Nick Chubb's specialties, along with the fact that the Steelers are giving that to the Browns, they're just handing it to them on the majority of snaps, the way they play their edge rushers, that bodes well for a Nick Chubb game rather than Kareem Hunt. Second of all, it's about the the moment and what the Browns are going to need in order to beat the Steelers. They're going to need explosive plays. Nick Chubb is we've we've gone deep on this podcast to the difference in, in runners they are. Kareem Hunt will get you the five to ten yard explosive runs, which are gut wrenching carries on a defense. He really wears the defense down physically. But Nick Chubb is the home run. Nick Chubb, well, he had 47-yard touchdown last week. I mean, the proof has been not just in his film, but in recent memory, how he can take the top off running the football for this Cleveland offense. There's nothing easier and, and more calming for an offense that when you can turn around and hand it to a tailback, and then all of a sudden it's 35 yards. All of a sudden it's a 55-yard score, and there's no more worrying about pressure being in Baker Mayfield's face on a third and nine because the possession's over. Nick Chubb is capable of taking the top off. And I'll end with this. There's precedent for this also. In week two and week three, respectively, Nick Chubb had 19 carries and 22 carries. 
broke 100 yards, multiple touchdowns, and Kareem Hunt was in that 8, 9, 10, 11 carry range. And we were like, wow, is this going to become more of a balancing act? And, and it did. But now I think they're, they're, we're going to get back here to the Browns putting that 18 to 25 workload on Nick Chubb because it's playoff time. It's make or break. And this offense runs the ball most efficiently with Nick Chubb. So actually I have two other things. So the, the next thing to me is, okay, we have seen at times this year where it takes them a little time to get going. And as much as like, as we've talked about this, we like to think sometimes like it's the run game, it's the run game. And the, but actually with, with this run game, especially with Chubb, sometimes it's two yards, two yards, two yards. And then it does pop and it's the explosive play. Without Kevin Stefanski there, with Alex Van Pelt in charge of this offense, what should they do? What if the first two drives, they are really trying to feed Chubb and they have two three and outs and he has four carries for nine yards which I don't think is impossible. I don't think that means they're yeah. going to lose, but I don't think that's impossible. What is that moment going to be like for Alex Van Pelt? I'm sure he and Kevin Stefanski are talking about it. And is the message, you have to keep doing it because it will pop. And if it doesn't pop, we're probably not going to, maybe we're not going to win. But you can't abandon it just because we have a slow start or will he Will you get? Will you back off it a little bit and try something different and get the ball out of Baker's hands and throw quick stuff to Hooper? Like, what if that's the scenario? Both you guys, what if that's what we see to start the game? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll go I'll go first here, quick, Scott. I'm. It's such a good question, Doug, and it it has the entire game plan tied to it because if it's three and out or five plays and out in the first two series for the Browns and the Steelers go up 10-0, 14-0, now we're now the game plan might be a little different. I'd say 10-0 is a lot different than 14-0, but I'm at a point where you can't alter your game plan at that point. You have to stick with it and keep running the football. And that's then when turnover, the turnover differential becomes pivotal. You're going to have to try and make something happen defensively and understanding how many possessions you're going to need by the game's end to dig yourself out of a 10 or 14 point hole while still running the football. I'll say this about the Steelers. I've been on record all week about how the Steelers offense is not a juggernaut trying to remind people of that. The Steelers are prone to their own three and outs. They're prone to, you know, first down and short or, you know, first down run goes nowhere. Second down short pass. All of a sudden it's third and 10 and Ben does nothing. The, The Browns did that to them in Pittsburgh a handful of times. So even if you have your own three and outs early, I think like a basketball game, you have to trust the momentum and trust that you'll have your own run, not to, you know, not to have no variation of my words here, but you'll go on your own run at one point and that will pay off. And then we're talking about a 14, 14, 17, 14 game, middle of the fourth quarter. And that's all you can ask for in the playoffs. Eight minutes left to be in the game. Yeah. It all depends on the score. I mean, Ellis is totally right. That, you know, if you go, uh, three and out a couple times. It depends on what your defense is doing on the other side of the ball. And if they fall behind, well, then you got decisions to make, but I guess we have to wait and see how uh, we we've seen Kevin Stefanski stick with the run, even when they fall behind a little bit. Uh, and even in the, the second half, you know, when they're, when they're trailing, um, he, he isn't going to abandon the way we've seen past coaches do it here, but we don't know how Alex Van Pelt's going to re- react to that situation. You would think that he would, have some sort of, you know, playbook that he's seen Kevin Stefanski use in, in those situations and know that, all right, Kevin would do it this way and I need to do it this way too. But, you know, we, we don't know. This is a different uh, different scenario with him calling plays. But, yeah, it's all going to come down to 
what else is happening, you know, in that first quarter if they, they start off slow. And then my, my last Chubb question here based on the belief of he needs to carry the ball 20-plus times. Do you feel like the way to describe Nick Chubb in this offense, when Nick Chubb does carry it a lot, is it more that Nick Chubb getting a lot of carries helps the Browns win? Or is it the Browns winning and being ahead helps Nick Chubb get a lot of carries because then they're putting games away in late in the third quarter and the fourth quarter. I'm not sure. Like, which do you think comes first in the equation most of the time? Sure. Uh, Because the Browns, you know, had a winning record and had leads this year, you can easily make the argument that those yards come because they have a lead they're running in the fourth quarter. To me though, this goes back to his home run hitting ability and his explosiveness. It's like having as many picks in the draft as you can when you're trying to find a franchise quarterback or just, you know, a blue chip player in general, you're going to want to throw Nick Chubb, throw that Nick Chubb home run dart as many times as you can on Sunday because you just don't know when it's going to hit. I mean, Scott, you can, you can speak to this far better than I can. Doesn't Nick Chubb have like a, a two carry hundred and something yard game or something like that. I mean, like he can just do this from anywhere. And that's the X factor that you, the other side doesn't have. I mean, who is the most dangerous offensive player in this football game on Sunday? It's Nick Chubb. Give him the ball. There's a deep dive we should do is figure out how many of uh, Chubb's explosive runs have come like by quarter. Yeah. Uh, first half. I, I haven't looked into that, but I'd be curious to see. Uh, we always think of late in the game, how he breaks those, those runs. Um, but I haven't really checked into that. I, I did one early in the year when I, I middle of the year, I wrote about them kind of coming out and sometimes running ineffectively early to run effectively late. And there was a stretch, like the first, his first like eight games of the year, he had like a 20 plus yard run, like in the second half, every game. And often he, he had a couple, but there was a point where if he had 12 of them, I think eight or nine were in the second half. And a lot of them were in the fourth quarter. And, and it was either in a tight game or a put away shot of like, okay, now they finally hit and here it goes. So it's not only in the second half, but a lot of it's in the second half. And I just want to acknowledge everybody that Ellis Williams on this podcast did compare giving the ball to Nick Chubb early in the game to trading down in the draft and accumulating picks. And you got to just accumulate and take your shot, and you'll eventually hit. The more you try, the better chance you have of hitting it. Analytics, Nick Chubb, boom. All right, who's offensive guy number? We won't go that long on every single player, but, man, it's Nick Chubb. Mm-hmm. It's Nick Chubb. I mean, at some point, someone's going to bring up B.J. Goodson or, uh, you know, Harrison Bryant, and we're not going to do 16 minutes on those guys. All right, who's next? Real quickly before I do number two, I – we're on the same page with that, right? Like Nick Chubb's the most explosive offensive player who will take the field Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think next is probably Chase Claypool, but Chase Claypool needs some help to do it, right? And Nick Chubb doesn't, I mean, Nick Chubb needs an offensive line. But but yeah, I think I wouldn't pick Chase Claypool ahead of Nick Chubb. Right, right. And and that's what I'm saying. I think we, I think the point is that simple. What would Mike Tomlin – Mike Tomlin is more comfortable when Nick Chubb doesn't have the ball. And to me, it's that simple. All right, next guy. Number two here, I have Austin Hooper. So bear with me a little bit here because I know Browns fans, Austin Hooper came in here with these huge expectations, and he's disappointed all of your fantasy teams. I completely understand that. But – this has got to watch the tape. We're talking X's and O's. We're not talking fantasy football. And for the reason I have Austin Hooper as the number two most important guy offensively on Sunday is because he's quietly coming into his own here 
for the Browns. Over the last three games, he's averaging five catches for 50 yards and a touchdown. And again, that might not sound like game-busting numbers, but when you look at the landscape that is the tight end position in, in the NFL – you got like three guys and then a, a bunch of other stuff. So if Austin Hooper is the best of the other stuff and that stat line to me says he is, that's what I'm trying to say that he's coming into his own and becoming a, a reliable passing option in this offense. Not that he wasn't early, but he's just finding that ability to, to occupy the middle and him and Baker are, are connecting more often now. That average comes down to 10 yards per catch. So again, it shows that he's handling the intermediate middle of the field and he remains the gotta watch guy on the goal line in the red zone. He's been pivotal for Baker Mayfield in the red zone this year, whether it's in those jumbo sets, three tight ends, or just getting open uh, off play action. It's been Austin Hooper looting the way there. And we're still unsure about Harrison Bryant's availability. So even more responsibility put on Austin Hooper there. Uh, The Steelers have allowed some decent tight end games recently uh, as I already said last week, Austin Hooper scored in week 14. Um, the Colts tight end, uh, Trey Burton, I believe, had four catches for 50 yards. Buffalo tight end Dawson Knox earned seven targets. He only had four, but that popped to me because of the, the high volume. Clearly, Buffalo, which is one of the best offensive in football, made a conscious effort to get their tight end involved, targeting him seven times against the Steelers defense. Uh, that tells me all I need to know that if other right offensive minds think that their tight end can exploit the Steelers in the middle of the field. They're doing so the Browns should do the same. And then the week before that Washington tight end, Logan Thomas, who is a better athlete than Hooper and is had a breakout season, but he had eight catches, 98 yards and a score. So the Steelers are vulnerable there. So I'm not saying Hooper needs to have the game of his life or even eclipse hundred yards. Uh, in fact, his highest receiving total for the Browns this season is just 57 uh, versus the Colts, his career high in Atlanta at one point was 130, and he even has a two-catch 124-yard uh, game versus uh, or with Atlanta. And I just thought that was interesting. You'd love to see that Randy Moss-like stat: the three catches for 170 yards and a touchdown type there. Hooper had his day uh, a couple years ago. But the point is this: when Baker needs a play in the middle of the field, Austin Hooper has been there these past three or four games. The Steelers are vulnerable against that position. I'm not telling the Browns to pass more than they run this week as I I started this deep dive, but on those third and sevens, third and eights, and in the red zone when Baker Mayfield needs a guy, Austin Hooper is going to be the one with the matchup advantage. He did, Baker did go to him a decent amount early on. Then he had the appendicitis and he was out for a while. Then when he came back, he had a couple games where he only had two targets. And then he was like the whole offense in the Jets game. He had 15 targets in the Jets game. And I'd almost, I don't know if it was like a reminder of like that he and Baker for all the, every, it was like maybe the only good thing that came out of the Jets game is like reinforcing because he had no other options, reinforcing the Mayfield Hooper connection. And it makes sense to me, Scott, that like, again, I'm, you're not asking the guy to have 130 receiving yards, but like a couple important first down catches work the middle of the field and maybe get a touchdown and, and be like a, an actual viable part of the offense, which like in the middle chunk of the year, Scott, he just, he really wasn't that very often. And that Jets game, it reminded me of watching Ozzie Newsom. I think it was like 84, whenever they had the, the strike and then some of the players kind of crossed the picket line at the end and Ozzie and Brian Brennan came back, I think. And like they threw, you know, a hundred times Ozzie Newsom that game because no one could cover him. You know, there's much scab players out there against them. As it was like watching Austin Hooper. It was just like, just throw it to him every time. Um, but I, 
I know Hooper has like what twice as many targets as the other uh, as Bryant or close to it. But I just I think of these guys as like a three headed monster. I haven't. Yeah. I don't want to say I've been underwhelmed by by Austin Hooper, but it's like I don't think of him separate from the other guys. I just think of them all together, and I think maybe that has to do with touchdowns and the fact that they all kind of have like three or four touchdowns uh, this season. Um, but yeah, I mean, in this game, like the, the Steelers linebackers uh, aren't great as far as the actual guys who play linebacker, not the edge rushers. Um, and, you know, if you can, if you can get Hooper into that area and, and, and open, then yeah, you got used to him. And you're going to be throwing shorter passes, I guess, to Austin Hooper on average, which could certainly help Baker out. Uh, but again, you know, you paid a lot of money to bring this guy in and this is something that, this is the game, the kind of game you want your stars to shine in, and he's one of them. That, that's the kind of thing that makes sense to me. It's like, oh, yeah, they paid Austin Hooper. Ah, he was fine. He blocked pretty well. I mean, he kind of did his job. And then, like, oh, in the playoff game, like, he made his money. Like, he plays his best, his most important best game of the year is now. That, that seems like a, a thing that I could wrap my head around for sure. Yeah, and if I could get – Kevin Stefanski off the record, I would ask him one question. Why does he not attack the middle of the field with tight end seams? You know, we've, we see that with offenses across the league. We've been seeing it for five or six years now. I just, clearly it's a philosophy thing that he just doesn't align with. And I'm, I'm, I'm just curious about it because that is such, was such a monster part of Austin Hooper's production in Atlanta. And you just do not see tight ends run vertical routes down the seam in this offense, they run fades, they'll run slot fades, but they don't bend in the middle like that to pick on um, one high looks or even some two highs. You can get it on depending where you put it. But to me that, that has, a, I think has a lot to do with Austin Hooper's lower yardage production because Scott, as you've talked about before, the tight end screens don't get it done. Do you think the tight end screen comes back this week? Is, are they going to bring it back? <laughs> we saw that so much in training camp. It's like we've only seen it sporadically. But I'm glad you brought up the seams because I think I did a post before the season about what kind of uh, routes we'd see on Stefanski's offense, and the seam was not one of them. And, and okay. you're right, Austin Hooper really excelled at that. Another one was slants, which we saw a ton of. I mean, Beckham made his career on that, and, and Landry excelled in that. We really haven't seen much of that at all. And obviously the any kind of like bubble screen is pretty much off the playbook. So it's it's been a different – series of routes for these receivers just this year compared to what they've done in the past. And, you know, maybe that'll evolve uh, next season after they've, they've had a full season now of digesting Stefanski's offense, maybe stuff like that gets added in. Who knows? All right. All right. Is the third guy, Michael Dunn? You, how did you know, Doug? I've got a whole deep <laughs> that Michael Dunn for you. you guys ready. He's never played in the NFL before, but Ellis went back and found his high school film and broke <laughs> I it found the tape. Break it down. <laughs> YouTube, it's a little grainy. I think he's number 78 in there. No, I'm just playing. Player number three, it's Rashard Higgins. When Baker needs a big play in the middle of the field, we said it's going to be awesome. Hooper, on the outside this season, it has proven to be Rashard Higgins who makes those plays. Now, I'm going to start with something a little dramatic here, but to me, this game has the makings of this could be Rashard Higgins' moment. You know, like I think when we get away from the game and we talk X's and O's and, you know, we, we live on Twitter and consume this stuff virtually, we forget how invested these athletes are and how much they believe and have faith in just their ability to change something. You know, 
I remember the Buffalo Bills game when Rashard Higgins scored the game-winning touchdown, his only catch of the game. And it was like the quote of the night when he talked about he dreamt that he was going to score the game-winning touchdown. So then it happened. You know, and like, and we can sit here and smirk as we're all doing and whatnot, but that is such a foundation of the athletic process. It's almost, I mean, it is religion. You, you believe it. You have to manifest it. And to me, Richard Higgins is that guy. And he's proven to have that connection with Baker Mayfield to give him those opportunities. You know, Doug can, or excuse me, Scott, you can speak to this much better than I can, but this is, could be the culmination of a pretty special Richard Higgins story from him being an afterthought when he was brought in here to cuts to him again, not even being considered a guy through multiple GMs, multiple head coaches, yet he survived it all. And he's starting in the Browns first playoff game since 2002. You know, he has that connection with Baker Mayfield, as I've documented, I already mentioned his ability to make clutch plays with the Buffalo touchdown last year. This season, he scored the lone touchdown in Pittsburgh. Uh, he scored against the Tennessee Titans, which was the game that I think all of us were like, okay, the Browns have arrived. This is it. They, they can play with the big dogs. And then he had the crucial fourth down touchdown against uh, Michael Peters or Marcus Peters, excuse me, of the Ravens on that Monday night game. This season, his 16 yards per catch is just a ridiculous number for anyone in the league, and especially a guy like Rashard Higgins, who is not considered a burner in the slightest. 16 yards per pop is remarkable. So again, as I said, if it's the middle of the field, expect Hooper, but on the outside, and he did it the first time they, or this, excuse me, last week when they played the Steelers, two catches, 55 yards. If something's going to happen on the outside, expect it to be Rashard Higgins. You know, he does see, seem like that kind of guy to me who, and I thought at times, sometimes like the Baker Higgins, like friendship and they were on the second team together and they know each other. I thought sometimes like that could, has been overplayed at times over the last couple of years, but I was wrong. Like it's real. Like it's all, definitely real. Like we all it's, overlooked it. Yeah. We all overlooked it. But I mean, I think I thought, I actually thought sometimes like we, we, the narrative too much of it. Like yeah. I get it. They practice together. Come on. <laughs> I, but now he is the kind of guy to me that sometimes this happens. What I hope doesn't happen with a guy like this. Cause it does happen in sports is there's something really good here. He really fits what they want to do fits what they need fits with a quarterback. I think his success is tied a lot to the situation. And I hope we don't end up in a world where, you know, okay, now he's going to go, he, he played pretty well, so some crappy team throws money at him in a couple-year deal, and he leaves, and then he doesn't do anything, and he doesn't do anything where he goes. The Browns actually do miss him, and it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. And, and I just was like, if, if this if it somehow winds up that he does not have a long-term future here in Cleveland, I just think it would be a drag. Um, Scott, what – you guys didn't even, didn't even blink on that. It would be a drag. <laughs> oh, that's good! That's good! Like I set it up for like four minutes. We'll hey, insert the laugh track there. Right. I'm only, I'm only trying to like <laughs> keep my deep dive going and be ready on my toes. So, but yes, stand up joke, Doug. Head on. My goodness. You guys and your numbers. I'm dropping. Oh. I'm dropping dad jokes over here, man. <laughs> um, does this does this feel like a big moment here for him, Scott? Does this make sense? I think it does. Look, Richard Higgins is is solid, and I think. Like you, you made a good point. This could be just a really good situation for him. He's uh, that that sixteen point two uh, yards per catch. That's thirteenth uh, in the league. Nuts. 
And he's 23rd in yards per route run, which is basically like you're taking production dividing by opportunity. And um, that's 23rd, you know, and we're talking about a guy who was basically on the scrap heap and they had to, he kind of came crawling back to the Browns this off season and he's producing. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is kind of best case scenario for Richard Higgins. I mean, you lose Odell and he steps in and he's, he's making things happen. Donovan Peoples Jones, by the way, 2.34 yards per route run. He doesn't have enough targets to qualify, but he would be in the top 10. That's, that's fascinating. That's pretty impressive. That's a, that bodes well for the future of his career. I think that he's doing that well uh, with, you know, in his rookie year with limited touches, but I could totally see uh, this. I mean, Higgins, he seems Baker seems to find Higgins in big moments this season. And it would not surprise me at all. If, if we see that again on Sunday, he's just, there's the connection, whether it's, cheesy or, or just overblown or whatever. It just, you know, it seems to exist. And I, I'm trying to look up numbers here, but I don't have them, but it feels like to me when he gets a shot, he takes advantage of it. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm trying to think of like big moments where, you know, Baker was thrown to him in an important spot and it, and it hit him in the hands and he dropped it. It doesn't, it, it feels like when he's called upon, he does what he's supposed to do. And I, he also just feels like, I don't, I think he will rise to a playoff game. You know, this is like a guy who, again, like you said, Ellis, like on the scrap heap and like, here he is. I don't think this is a, a, a Hollywood Higgins shrinks in the moment. I think this is like a, this is what I've been waiting my whole life for kind of thing for him. Exactly. And to Scott's point, he's only playing because Odell gets hurt and then Kudero Hodge gets hurt. Like th- this, this regime didn't really want to entertain Richard Higgins outside of depth. And he's made the most of this. And now is the, the, the most clutch receiver on the outside that they have. Um, to, to your point, Doug, about just clutchness and him showing up, even the fourth down play last week against the Steelers, uh, they, they turned it over on downs and Baker threw a bad throw. That was targeted for Higgins. You know, in, in a, in a got to have it spot, Kevin Stefanski called Higgins' number on a, a, a situation that he liked, having him on the outside there and winning on an out route. It, it's just he has answered the bell every time he's been asked to, and it's not like he's, you know, going to an unfamiliar situation this is the Pittsburgh Steelers. He knows what they're about. They might not have Joe Hayden. He, he's going to be ready for this. Hey, real, right. real quick, real quick. I, and I didn't realize this until just this moment because I've spent so much time on defense in recent weeks. Richard Higgins is third in the NFL among receivers in DVOA. Wow. Which, which kind of shocks me. Um, yeah. Again, and that's, you know, your that's value per play over an average wide receiver in the same game situations. So yeah, third. Something's happening there. I mean, there's just something going on. I hope he stays. But that makes sense. sense. Yeah, it would make too much sense. They, they need each other. It's just hard. I, I, I think, I mean, this is, this is not a great example, but I just still think back to like when Terrell Pryor was here, when the Browns were awful, they had nobody at receiver. And it was like, hey, Terrell Pryor had like a good, good year. And then, you know, he went and he got more money somewhere else and he basically vanished. And like, he probably could have stuck around and like helped this team a little bit, but he was like, he was kind of good enough in a bad situation to get paid probably more than he was worth and then not perform up to the level of pay and both sides kind of end up losing. And obviously the Browns are fine without him, but like, I just, I hate when that happens and money talks. I understand it, but I just hope, I hope he's a guy who winds up here for a long time because I think the Browns are better with him and he's better with Baker and they should stay together. All right. Nick Chubb, Austin Hooper, Rashard Higgins. That's like you, Ellis. You're like, the, you're like, don't you be going off 
Don't you be going off to ESPN.com. Oh, come. Ellis comes here. He gets a th- gets some targets. High DVOA. Takes advantage of his opportunities. Shows everybody what he can do. Goes for the big money. Gone. Ellis, you belong here. Doug, you know why me and Richard aren't going anywhere? Because I know that the the race group they got going on here in Cracker Park, Jedrick and Richard, I want in. <laughs> I'm not going until they let me in the group, man. I got, I, I can do some stuff in my little 2012. You know, I got it. <laughs> can we put that on the off-season budget? On the off-season story budget, is Ellis is going to drag race with Browns players? That is hot. The right uh, along. I like your chances, Ellis. All right, uh, that's some good offensive breakdown. Next up, three Browns defensive players on the spot here in the Steelers game. You are listening to Got to Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Back on Got to Watch the Tape, Doug Maurice, Ellis Williams, Scott Patsko. I'm curious. That's like, I like this uh, how this is unfolding because I don't know who your guys are. So I was curious to see who Ellis was going to say, and I'm curious to see who Scott's going to say. Because, again, it's like a famous guy can be important and be a guy to talk about here, but it doesn't have to be just the famous guy. So let's see where you go, Scott Patsko. Dive in on Got to Watch the Tape. You know, Ellis talked about uh, how possibly he'd have honorable mentions here. And I'm thinking, man, I'm scraping the barrel just to get guys on the field on the defensive side of the ball. We don't know if Kevin Johnson's back yet or Denzel Ward, Malcolm Smith. I mean, none of those guys, those are Friday afternoon here, have been cleared. Uh, so we don't really know. But um, you might notice a trend with the three players I got. They're all connected to slowing the Steelers passing game, which, as we mentioned, is not prolific at all. It's 21st in DVOA, 20th in PFF grade but it's still what makes the Steelers offense go. So with that in mind, my first player is Miles Garrett. Um, I, I went for star power uh, right off the bat here. I could have gone with Adrian Claiborne and, you know, his, his performance will be important on the other side of the ball because he's filling in for Olivia Vernon, but this is a big game for Miles Garrett. Something in, in, in the ways that it could be a big game for, for a guy like Austin Hooper. Um, the Steelers don't let much pressure on Ben Roethlisberger. And we've talked about that before, but you have one of the best pass rushers in the NFL and this is the kind of game where he needs to make a difference. The challenge is you have to do it against the Steelers. Uh, I think I mentioned uh, earlier this week, Roethlisberger, quickest time to throw in the NFL, 2.3 seconds. The Steelers offense relies on short, quick throws to move the ball. That means there isn't much time to get to the quarterback on those throws. He's only been sacked 13 times, which is the fewest among regular starters. He's scrambled just three times this season. Three times, that's it. I mean, I'm sure he's moved around the pocket and kind of had to avoid things, but as far as a, a, a true scramble, three times. Um, and he does have the most batted balls uh, among quarterbacks this year with 18. And I'm sure there are listeners of this podcast who assume Baker Mayfield led the NFL in that category. It seems like almost every week there's a batted ball, but he's, he's only tight for ninth. He's got 10. But Big Ben, huge guy, big stature, strong arm, batted 18 times. Um, PFF ranks the Steelers fifth in pass blocking. They're first in adjusted sack rate, which measures sacks per pass attempt and adjusts for things like intentional grounding, considers down a distance. Um, their adjusted sack rate is 2.7. The second rate team, the Rams, are at 4.2. So there's, there's, a, there's a big gap there. There's also a seven sack gap between the Steelers and the team with the second fewest sacks, which is the Packers. So they're kind of uh, on an island by themselves as far as protecting Roethlisberger. Despite all that, though, the Steelers, the only Steelers offensive lineman in the top 30 in pass protection in PFF grade is Kevin Dotson, who started the last two games at left guard for the Steelers, but he only has four starts this year, and he played the majority of snaps in only one other game. In pass pro, he, his 
grade is ranked sixth. He's at 87.2. The highest ranked pass blocker among the rest of the regulars on their line is David DeCastro. He's ranked 31st. Left tackle Alejandro Villanueva, I feel like I need an accent when I say that, is 40th. Nobody else is in the top 100. Marquise Pouncey, who should return this week uh, at center, he sat out last week, he's 110th in pass protection with a 64.8 grade. By comparison, the Browns have three players ranked in the top 20 in pass protection. And they're also PFF's top ranked, really blocking group overall, running and, and passing. The Steelers are ranked 28th in pass blocking win rate at just 51%. But as I said off the top here, the design of the passing game works in their favor with all these quick throws. So how's Garrett done against the Steelers this season? In week six, he rushed a little bit from both sides. Uh, 16 rushes from the left. He had one pressure, which was a sack. He had seven rushes from the right with no pressures. Uh, last week, week 17, he stayed almost exclusively on the right against Villanueva. He rushed from that side 31 times. He only had two pressures, which were both hurries. He rushed twice from the other side, and he didn't have any pressures. That was the same tactic the Browns used last season in week 11 when Garris, uh, he rushed 35 out of 37 times against left tackle. He had six pressures that day uh, against Villanueva, um, but none were sacks. So it's, it's worked, I guess, maybe when him – it's worked more when he's focused on one side for whatever reason he wanted to kind of go back and forth uh, the last time earlier this season when they played and it didn't, it didn't really produce as much. Uh, a key will be getting the Steelers to third down. They almost never run the ball on third down and distance is longer than two yards. Um, they rush just eight times on third down between when you, they have between three and six yards to go, they pass the ball 62 times in those situations. So they're more likely to pass just, on third down overall, and that's going to give Miles Garrett a little more opportunity if they can get him to that point. Uh, creating pressure on the quarterback is also important because other players the Browns won't have in the secondary. Like I mentioned, Ward, Johnson are still uh, up in the air. You don't have Ronnie Harrison as well. He's been ruled out. Um, so you're missing your best cornerback, your best safety, and perhaps in Malcolm Smith, your best coverage linebacker. So that's why Garrett is kind of top of my list here of players that, that need to come up big because – they need their star player to play like that to overcome what they're missing. So I was just running through Miles's individual PFF grades in his career against the Steelers. And the, the highest one, the one that really stands out, that's the game I was thinking of, is the opener in 2018 when they tied the, the Steelers 21-21. And it felt to me, and I think I remember, I couldn't find the column, but I remember like writing after the game that's like, that was exactly what you would expect Miles Garrett to do because, like, he single-handedly kept the Browns from losing a game. Mm-hmm. Like, I, what, what did he do? He tackled somebody late. What did he do? He had, like, did he force a fumble? He did something that, like, absolutely changed the game and and saved them. And so that is what is in my head about Miles Garrett in this game. And I don't know, like, it's like, what's your standard for Miles Garrett in this game? It's like, win the game by himself. It's like, oh, just oh, do that. Oh, that. oh, that. Oh, that's the standard single-handedly win a playoff game, but I've, you've felt that from him at times in his career. Like, because they had that guy, they won. If they didn't have that guy, they would have lost. And I just, I just don't know, right? It's the Steelers. They're very competent. He's been dealing with COVID in the second half of the season. I get it, but man, Scott, I, I, that's, a, that's too high of a bar. But... We- 
that when you're talking, that's what's in my head. Well, you've had some of those games this season, you know, the strip yeah. sacks, uh, the early part of the season. And, and those were huge. And that's the kind of play that, that Miles Garrett needs to have in this game that, I mean, this defense needs to get turnovers. That's what they live off. And the Steelers, the Steelers actually live off that too. And if the Browns can win that, win that turnover battle that, you know, Miles Garrett is one of your best opportunities of, of getting those turnovers. Is that too much, Ellis, or is it okay if people are thinking like me and thinking like Miles Garrett could win this game? I think that's what the recipe has to be for this defense. Scott's exactly right. This is going to come down to turnovers and how the Browns can win that differential. When you're low, when you're lim- you're going to have some limitation on your offense. Your, your entire bag is going to be available. You need your defense to max out its opportunities. Some some points I want to make on Miles Garrett <clears throat> that all piggyback off some stuff Scott said. The way the Browns create pressure with four guys here without Olivier Vernon is going to be real pivotal, especially early. Like if Adrian Claiborne, as Scott mentioned early, if he's not getting it done in the, you know, halfway through the second quarter, perhaps I could see Joe Woods bringing additional pressure. And remember that in Pittsburgh, and I think it was the first quarter, the Browns forced a Big Ben interception by overloading the left side sending five and they actually dropped miles Garrett into coverage and just, you know, over, it was too much on, on the right side of the offensive line for big Ben to count. They got to him even with his quick release and they forced a turnover. So if you're not able to create pressure with four, then that's going to cause Joe was to blitz. And he's shown that he does have some exotic packages capable of doing that. I just made a good example of a, of a blitz that uh, got the best of the Steelers, a bad example would be the Lamar Jackson touchdown on Monday night football that eventually won the Ravens, the game that, well, the field goal did, but you get my point that they, they, they make a stop there. The game's over. That was the same type of blitz concept that Lamar Jackson took advantage of, but big Ben's not Lamar. So I could see them. My point is that if you have some exotic stuff, you want to try with miles Garrett, as in dropping him to coverage, this is the game to do it. Watch for that. Scott was dead on about big Ben and the swatted passes uh, the Washington game, that's how Washington defeated the Steelers and gave them their first loss. The Steelers needed to go down and score to win. I think it was like on the first or second down of the, the series, go-ahead series, deflected ball at the line of scrimmage, interception, game over. The Browns offensive line, I know they're only practicing once or twice this week, but I really hope and I'm confident that Joe Woods, Chris Kiffin are telling their guys, look, you're probably not going to get to bend much. Get your hands up when you do and that leads me to moments. And it's what Scott said about getting the Steelers to third and long. That's when Miles Garrett can be unleashed because I think Miles is going to understand that he's just, the Steelers just aren't going to allow him that many opportunities to wreck this game. Scott laid it out. They throw short, quick releases. If there's only two seconds to get to the quarterback, the math doesn't check out. You're not going to get to the quarterback. But in third and long, it's got to be Miles. And when Miles sees Big Ben open to him and he sees his eyes on his side of the field, jump, get those hands up, because that means he's throwing your way. Those are the two critical moments in football where Miles Garrett can swing this game and then end up wrecking it without, you know, him being a 60-minute constant force. And I have a terrible memory, but th- this was, wasn't this just in the fun talk of stuff, but like Miles' rookie year, like right from the jump, wasn't it? Didn't he say something about, oh, yeah, I, I – excited to go against Ben Roethlisberger or whatever like this to is, chop him down chop him down 
So this is prime chopping season. I mean, this this is what really is. This is the matchup that we've been that everything's been leading toward. That if there is going to be a thing, and 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 as much as however you think it is the importance of the Browns, like beating the Steelers in the division to get past them because you have to win your division before you can win anything else. Like that's the passing of the torch. It's not really Baker, Ben. I mean, it kind of, but it's, it's really Miles Garrett, who was the number one pick at the start of this whole thing, chopping down the hall of famer. Like that's the matchup, Scott. And like, if it happens, that's the thing. A Nick Chubb explosive run would, would give the Browns a jolt right? That would send a shockwave through the team. But Miles Garrett getting to Ben Roethlisberger for a sack or a strip sack or whatever, that is that is the thing. I could That would lift this entire defense, not just in a loss of nine, but emotionally. So, man, it's right there. It's all right there. Obviously, but still fun to talk about. All right, who's two? Who's two? Is it, uh, let me guess. I'm going to guess it's not Sandejo, is it? Is it Sandejo? Two is not Sandejo. Okay. He's Robert three. Jackson. He's three. Two is Robert Jackson. Oh! Like I said, as of uh, recording this, we don't know the status of Ward or Johnson. Um, so we got to do Robert Jackson. I mean, let's talk about Robert Jackson. The fact that a guy named Robert Jackson is a key player for the Browns in a playoff game is going to make some Browns fans feel a little nostalgic because for he is not the first of his name. To, uh, to play a role. I'm sorry, I've been reading Game of Thrones lately. Um, <laughs> I love it. He is not the first of his name to play a role for the Browns in the playoffs. There was Robert Jackson, the offensive guard, who played 11 seasons with the Browns, 75 to 85. I'm sure a lot of Browns fans remember him. He was part of the, the Cardiac Kids era. Uh, he later became Robert E. Jackson because the Browns also had Robert L. Jackson, who they drafted with the 17th overall pick in 77. He played linebacker. Uh, by the way, his middle name was Lee, so his nickname was Stonewall. Great name for a linebacker. Not sure it would fly today, though. Um, his middle now the name Browns, was Lee, so his nickname was Stonewall. Robert L. Robert L. Jackson. Lee, Lee Stonewall that, Jackson. That is a long. It's not like Robert E. Lee's name was Stonewall. That is a long way to go for a Confederate general nickname. <laughs> and the seventies were weird. How about that? It's like everything, I, everything had a nickname in the seventies and like I just had the cardiac kids. It's like, Oh, I can't, I can't wait. I really want to nickname somebody for a Confederate general. Does anybody have a middle initial L <laughs> that'll get us there. Did he have, what? Did, did he have a small uh, pro wrestling career also? <laughs> what is that? By the way, if the Browns win this game, we already know what, and if Robert Jackson plays a role, we know what Scott is writing last week. He is calling the previous Robert Jacksons to write about this Robert Jackson. We know how Patsco thinks. Oh, yeah. It's all connected. Um, so I guess for now, we'll call this Robert Jackson version 3.0. Um, and he he was actually undrafted out of UNLV. Uh, this is going to be his second start, assuming it's going to be a second start. Uh, his first start was last week. Here's how it went. Jackson was targeted team high 10 times. He gave up six catches for 129 yards. That included a long of 47, which was the deep pass to Deontay Johnson uh, late in the fourth quarter. It set up the touchdown that led to the potential game tying two point conversion. Uh, Jackson had one pass breakup in the game. Mason Rudolph had a passer rating of 104.2 when he targeted Jackson. 
his coverage grade was 54.8. Uh, he graded below 60 pretty much across the board, tackling run defense overall. The Steelers got multiple matchups against Jackson. It was clear they, they wanted to target him. He gave up two catches on four targets to Chase Claypool, three catches on four targets to Johnson. Uh, he's only targeted once uh, against James Washington, who didn't have a catch against them. James Conner even had a, a catch uh, matched up against Jackson. The Steelers got five first downs when they passed at Robert Jackson. Only, Jacob's Phil- only Jacob Phillips saw more targets against more players than Jackson did. They, they threw five different players at Jacob Phillips. Um, but it's worth noting that Jackson had just seven defensive snaps prior to that game, and six of them came this, this season. Uh, now he's likely to get back-to-back starts. I'm not saying Robert Jackson has to come out and play uh, even at Terrence Mitchell level or, you know, obviously not at Denzel Ward level, but it's clear that he needs to be a presence because Ben Roethlisberger is going to know where he is on every play. And if Kevin Johnson doesn't play, you can probably add MJ Stewart to that, to that list as well. Um, these are two guys who, who haven't gotten a ton of opportunities this year. And now they're on the field trying to defend the team that passes more than anybody in the NFL in, in the playoff game. So um, even Joe Woods noted this week that the Steelers are definitely going to target Robert Jackson. So he's number two on my list. So the best, the best way we could evaluate Robert Jackson is how well he does patting Denzel Ward on the back as Denzel Ward goes into the game, right? That would be ideal. And again, as we record this Friday evening, we don't know. We don't know who, I mean, you know, originally Mary Kay has kind of said all along, right. That it seemed like, if it was a Sunday game in the playoffs instead of a Saturday game, Denzel Ward would have a chance. But as we record this on Friday evening, he's still on the COVID-19 list, right? Is that, right. that's the correct. So we don't know then we just don't know, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible. So the, the thing that I don't know about this and I, 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 what you said, Scott Ellis, how much of this is okay. Cause I did think he was there. I did think, I don't know how to evaluate like, well, you were right there and the guy caught it, but at least you were there. Cause what, what makes you crazy is the blown coverages and guys pointing at each other and being like, I thought you had him. I thought you had him. And for a guy who had basically never played before, it didn't feel like a ton of that. It felt like he's there and they're just catching it, which also is not great. How much of that Ellis could be. All right. He just had never played before. And now that he's played, he's going to be somewhat percent better because it's not going to be all totally new. And actually the good thing for him is it's the same guys, same game plans. Cause, cause the one thing that the Steelers had last week were their receivers, all the receivers played last week. It's not like they held those guys out. Robert Jackson, truly. It's like none of the defensive guys played Ben didn't play. And the only thing that Mason Rudolph can do is throw a deep ball. So it was like Robert Jackson's worst nightmare. Should we assume, I don't know how it works. Ellis, you're a player. Like, like just having lived through it once, will it automatically make him a little better this time around? Or was what happened last week just more of a reflection of this guy's a fourth stringer in the NFL. He's really not talented enough to handle this, but the Browns don't have any other choice. Despite everything Scott laid out there and Doug kind of teased it, we're telling you that it could have went worse for Robert Jackson. It really could have went a lot worse. Like, you know, imagine if he would have got the chase Claypool touchdown, you know, just, just kind of mossed, went right over your kind of sunsy a little bit. Those are the type of plays that really crush your confidence. I'm pretty confident that Robert Jackson didn't leave that game thinking that he didn't belong on an NFL football field. They just tried him. 
And those are some pretty talented receivers and they just tried them and that's okay. And I'm going against my own rule here, but you know, the 147 yarder, it wasn't like this again, a, a, a blown coverage, like Doug said, a, a, a you got my situation. Like I laid out with Chase Claypool. It was just uh, sure. A guy who's a lot faster than you gets by you and lays out and makes a nice, nice catch. And if this was next gen stats or something, we'd say there was a 24% chance of ball being completed. Yada, yada, yada. It's a, it was a tough play and he was right there. So Doug, you're hundred percent right. That I think it helps immensely that he's seeing the same guys again, He's going to have a, a, a level of comfort there. You, you can study that same tape. You're going to learn their little tendencies some tricks. And again, I think it's so important that he just didn't get embarrassed. It's not like he went home, opened up Twitter to see what people were saying about him. And his name was, you know, getting ran through the mud because of some play where he fell down or where he didn't know where he was supposed to be. Or again, someone went over his helmet and, and made him look like a little kid. He, he, he really did play fine. If you're going to get targeted 10 times, you're probably going to get got a few times. And can we get those targets down to, you know, 10 targets and only six receptions? That might be the difference in the game. And that's what Scott's trying to say. He did. He fought. He, he did feel like he fought. And I think I, I mean, and again, a lot of this, Scott, when we do this stuff, I mean, he shouldn't be in this position, but he might be. So we're not like ripping the dude and the dot, the guy tried his best, but we're trying to analyze how it's going to affect the game. Yeah, and, and Joe Wood said multiple times in those press conference this week about how they really need to clean up some technique things with him. You know, he was there, he was close to making some plays, but it, you know, he really had some some poor technique in certain situations. But you're talking about, you know, you're you're week 17 of the NFL season, you're talking about a guy on your defense who you kind of have to clean up some technique things on. And so clearly that's not an ideal situation. You know, you wouldn't be talking about those things with Terrence Mitchell and Denzel Ward on the field so much, it's, uh, you know, it could have been worse. You're right. It could have been worse. And I think, uh, I, I just think about Big Ben being out there instead of Mason Rudolph and, and the targets that didn't happen because Mason Rudolph maybe didn't recognize it and Ben Roethlisberger will. I am going to have a little faith in your entire breakdown being rendered irrelevant because. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it is. Uh, I, you know, I, th- I think there's, you know, people listen to this. You'll know it by the time. I mean, you know, you, you'll you if Denzel Ward's playing, everybody listening to this is going to know it as soon as it happens because you'll get it in the text. But then you'll also find about other ways because it's that big of a deal. Um, but it's very possible that, that Robert Jackson is going to wind up having to fight some more in a playoff game. All right. Who's three? It's it's Sendejo, isn't it? It's Sendejo. Look, I only had so many people to choose from. OK, we've talked throughout the second part of this podcast about how we don't know who's playing. Um, but I went with Sandejo. The third player. <laughs> you don't even want to do it. You don't want to do it. You well, can't make yourself do it. I'm talking about the safeties on Wednesday. But the third player really needed to be somebody in the secondary because the Steelers are the worst rushing team in the league. I'm not going to talk about Larry Joby or really Sheldon Richardson so much. Um, I mean, they, it's a league low, 84 yards rushing per game. And they passed more than anybody. 656 pass attempts this year. No one threw more than that. So I want Sandejo here basically because the last two games for the Steelers, or really the last six quarter for the Steelers, and how they've kind of started to incorporate more downfield passing into their offense. Roethlisberger had six attempts at 20 yards or more against the Colts in Week 16. He completed three of them for two touchdowns. Last week, Mason Rudolph completed four of nine deep passes. One of those was a TD, and the other one set up touchdowns. 
Uh, so it's not that the Steelers weren't taking shots downfield prior to that. As we pointed out on this podcast, Chase Claypool, he's third in deep targets this season with 31. Roethlisberger is fourth in deep attempts this season. And he has 11 touchdowns on those throws, but he's only completing he's 33rd in adjusted completion percentage on those deep passes. Um, and then only 11 of those 31 targets to Claypool have been ruled catchable. So that's, that's pretty much the disconnect, but the last two weeks they've hit on some big ones and it's paid off. And you know, that's how they ended up clinching the division and almost beating the, the Browns in week 17 overall though, a league high 59% of Roethlisberger's passes target players short of the first down marker. And that's pretty much where, this whole quick short passing game that kind of explains it right there. You're not throwing very far down the field for the most part. Most of the deep shots have pretty much been go routes, stuff like that down the sideline prior to the last couple of weeks. In the last six quarters, the Steelers seem to have started maybe a new trend. And that's why I'm kind of basing that all around and, and picking Sandejo in this. If they think they're kind of onto something, with what has worked for them the last couple of weeks, that's when Sadeo really comes into play here. Um, and as I talked about on Wednesday, uh, when I dove into the, the safety pairings, Sandejo has not had a good year. He's 94th out of 99 qualifying safeties in defensive grade. He's 95th out of 99 in coverage grade, tied for seventh in missed tackles, and quarterbacks have a passer rating against him of 118.6, which is ranked 25th. His only game against the Steelers this season, he graded 56.8 and had three missed tackles, but he actually had his second best coverage grade of the season, 65.9. Probably because he was targeted zero times in that game. Like we mentioned, Roethlisberger uh, at that point in the season wasn't throwing downfield as much. He only threw the ball 22 times in that first game. And he had his few, that was actually his fewest attempts in a game this season. And that makes sense because we all remember the circumstances and how that game uh, unfolded. Uh, but as you said, Wednesday's pod, Wednesday's pod, Sandejo and Carl Joseph, which is the pairing we're going to get uh, on Sunday, they started eight games together at safety this season, and they've never played well together. They've never both graded above 60 in their shared starts, but the Browns are 6-2 in those games. So maybe safety play. <laughs> maybe safety play is overrated. Who knows? They've overcome secondary issues all season, but this game I think maybe could provide more to overcome, especially for Sandejo if the Steelers do continue this trend of, of, uh, of looking downfield and actually having success. And we did talk a lot about those safety pairings. And then like the next day, Ronnie Harrison went on the COVID list and exactly. I was like, uh, cause Sandejo came off and Harrison went on when you thought that actually would probably be the pairing right. this week. And it's like, no, that's not going to be the pairing because they keep getting COVID. So um, hasn't there, has there been, any kind of thing here late in the year before Zendejo went on the COVID list of like, hey, maybe we're being too hard on him. He's actually been okay the last couple of games of the season. Ellis, is that where we were headed? It's, uh, he's rolling his eyes. <laughs> I'm trying to be nice. No, I'm trying to be nice. No. You know, for, 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 our, for our listening audience only, uh, when Scott made that six and two data point there, he kind of just threw his hands up in the air like, you guys keep making me talk <laughs> about the safeties of Zendejo. Why do you keep doing this to me? <laughs> I'll say this about Sandeo. He's got six career playoff games, uh, five where he was actually a part of the sharing defense. The first one came in 2012 with the Vikings. He was a special teamer. Uh, valuable snaps there. I, it's always the mixture of like, oh, well, you you have no playoff experience. You, you might not be ready for it. Or who cares? You have a bunch of playoff experience. You're old. You can't get the job done anymore. I think Bill Belichick has a famous quote about 
like Lawrence Taylor never played in a playoff game and he had 18 sacks his first time. You know, that's LT. Point is this, I think there is something to that, just having a guy there who has done it. And now we're talking about a, a Steelers stadium that's not going to have any fans in it. So really neutralizes home field and gives the the, the veterans and a chance to just mess with each other more on calls and pick things up. Sandeo is going to have every opportunity to affect this game. Like the rest of this defense, he's only going to do it via the turnover. If there's anyone who's going to drive, like, for example, I think I said this on the Scott's safety deep dive earlier in the week. When Robert Jackson was beat on that 47-yarder to Deontay Johnson, I'm convinced if it was Sandejo, that's an incomplete pass. If there's one thing Sandejo can do, it's putting his foot in the ground, sprinting straight, and finding the football. He's out of control when he gets there, but he does get there. So maybe I just incriminated him on a pass interference call. But regardless, he does get to the football. And that's who, if you're going to have one of the – deep safeties available for the Browns. It should be Sandejo. We, sh- we should say the last time Sandejo played in week 16 against the Jets, he had probably his best game of the season. Uh, he did not have a missed tackle, which has only happened three other times this season. He had a 80.9 tackle grade, um, 68.2 overall defensive grade, which is his second best uh, behind the Jacksonville game. So he did do well. Again, they lost that game, but he did do well the last time he was on the field. And, I mean, two of his best games have come in the last four weeks. So maybe things are trending in the right direction that way. But I do agree that having experience in the back of the defense, maybe this is when it, you know, when that means the most. Can I throw in an honorable mention guy on defense? I'm curious about Jacob Phillips, who graded out pretty kind of okay filling in at middle linebacker for Goodson last week. And now BJ Goodson's back. And of course, BJ Goodson's going to go back in the middle, but Jacob Phillips played like as three times as many snaps last week as he had played in any game. And his, his PFF grade for last week was Goodson has started 14 games. Goodson's six of his individual game grades were higher than what Phillips did last week, but Phillips's grade was higher than eight of Goodson's game. So he played as a rookie who hadn't really played that position much played pretty I thought okay and Scott you're saying he sort of got targeted by a lot of people and but he didn't I don't think he was like disastrous there and he's a third round pick he's supposed to be good it makes me wonder a little bit about and they've been moving linebackers around all year Goodson's back in the middle I want I don't exactly know I'm curious about how much Phillips plays this week was last week in that game an indication of they're going to put him out there at outside linebacker in a in a significant day this week, or does he kind of go back to playing 18 or 20 snaps? Yeah, I, I wanted to stay away from the linebackers because it's just there's so much unknown. It's not knowing if Malcolm Smith's going to be back and really not knowing what last week means for Jacob Phillips with Goodson back. You know, they've kind of really gone situational a lot of times with these guys, and, um, you know, a lot of guys last week got snaps. I mean – Let's Taki Taki 38 snaps, Mac Wilson 32, Jacob Phillips had the 67. So, yeah, I mean, you take, you put Goodson in that equation and, you know, who's losing snaps there. And if Malcolm Smith gets cleared, who else is losing snaps? So it's clearly the linebackers. I mean, this is a, the beginning for the defense overall, but this, this linebacker crew has just been kind of weird to really pin down because you've had so much movement and their guys are, you have a bunch of guys who are good at one thing. And there's nobody who really excels across the board or at multiple things who you'd want out there for multiple snaps. 
I just wonder because Phillips is Phillips is not like Jackson and that Phillips, there are expectations for him, but he only played three of the first nine games of the season. And we, you know, he's been working his way back slowly. And then since he started playing in week 11, he played three snaps, 11, 18, 10, 22, and then 67 last week. Like he finally in week 17 played. He finally played and I thought he was okay. And as much as the linebackers have been in and out and all over the place, especially if Malcolm Smith is back, I wonder if they have a chance to piece together maybe like the best linebacking unit they've had all year that Goodson has played better in the second half of the year. He's back. Phillips got his feet under him. Taki Taki and Malcolm Smith do what they do. And can you mix and match it enough to be like, listen, it's still not great, but it's, it's the best we've had. So I just, I don't know if I'm over interpreting the Phillips thing, but I was encouraged by last week. Yeah, I was too. And really with this defense, it might be interesting to look in the off season, like, has there been even a single game where the <clears throat> same 11 guys have all been out there for Joe Woods? You know, it has been moving parts all over and perhaps that's just a theme throughout the league, but you know, we're beat writers. We talk about the Browns. So specifically for them, it feels like they've had a different guy in a different spot, whether it's strong, weak, middle safeties, we've documented it all. It just feels like there has not been a, 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 the same 11 combination multiple times this season. And with that, I'm not sure if, and we talked about this on the earlier dive that if having three linebackers on the field is even what the team will decide to do this week, it might just be two guys. What two of those are is going to be fascinating to watch as we, because we've documented how this team is going to throw short. And if they're going to do try anything else, then we'll try throwing long because they're not running the football. But a lot of that, I feel like maybe a lot of that safety flexibility got taken away with the fact Harrison's out. Yeah. It's like, I don't even know what, what third safety they'd put out there at this point. So. Is, is it just MJ Stewart again? Yeah, it is. Yeah, we it's talked what, on Wednesday about the possibility of the going with three guys. And that I think that's you know, obviously gone now. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, Joe Woods, I, you know, I don't think Joe Woods has been perfect, but I mean, Joe Woods, we it's we haven't really really got a, gotten a sense for what he wants right. to do but because of the pandemic, because he's new, but because he just from the minute Grant Delpit went down to every week, somebody knew it really you've had to get it's hard to get a handle on this defense. All right, so those are our dudes on offense and defense. We'll take a quick break and come back with final thoughts heading into this playoff game Sunday night. Scott Patsko, Ellis Williams, Doug Maurice, you're listening to Gotta Watch the Tape. All right, we're back. Ellis, you've got some honorable mention, guys. Who, do, who did you want to throw in here before we leave? Yeah, at first I think it's important to mention Jarvis Landry. I mean, he's the, the lifeblood of this Browns offense, perhaps you know the whole team really, uh, the galvanizing force. The only reason I, I selected Austin Hooper over Jarvis Landry is a guy who could patrol the middle of the field and be Baker's guy. It wouldn't surprise me at all here if Jarvis has a, a big game. Of course, he scored that critical touchdown last week. It's just that the Steelers do such a good job at eliminating what you do best. We, we, we've talked at length about how they aren't going to let the Browns bootleg. Well, the other thing that they're really good at is letting Jarvis Landry operate the middle of the field. I don't think Mike Tomlin lets that happen. So again, Jarvis is a guy I expect to show up and he will. It's just the, the opportunities are going to be there for Austin Hooper. And then the other guy I wanted to mention is Wyatt Teller. He did not play the first time against the Steelers. The Nick Chubb, Wyatt Teller combination is something we've been all over on. Got to watch the tape. And if Wyatt Teller is just bruising power runs and the Browns are picking up six yards a carry when running power with Wyatt Teller leading and Nick Chubb running, then this game becomes a lot smoother towards the second half and the third and fourth quarter to finding a way for the Browns to win. 
Scott, what you got? You know, this kind of uh, is connected to the, our last segment, how we wrapped up talking about Joe Woods. I have a, I get an email every week after every Browns game from somebody who really doesn't like Joe Woods and complains about decisions and the fact that he never blitzes. They hate that Joe Woods doesn't blitz. And they are one of the, the, the least blitzing teams uh, in the league. But I'm really excited to – I mean, the Browns defense is going to be whatever it's going to be for however long they're in the playoffs. But I'm really excited to see – what this defense becomes next year because man, Joe Woods is like, has there ever been a, a defensive coordinator who's gone through so much turmoil on his side of the ball as he has? It's, it's pretty much incredible. I mean, every, every position group has had major losses at certain times and you had opt outs before the season even started. So I think Joe Woods has done good through all this. This defense has not been great, obviously. And we've talked about a lot of the players who have played below their level uh, the level they were at before they got here. But uh, the fact that they did finish 11 and five with this defense and Joe Woods kind of kept things together on that side of the ball. Um, I think it's to be commended and I'm excited to see what he does next season. I don't know if you guys read the thing I wrote the other day. Do you know who the three defensive players are for the Browns? The only three who have played all 16 games. Sheldon Richardson. That's one. Terrence Mitchell. Terrence Mitchell is two. Mitchell. The last one's really hard. I'll give you five seconds. Five, four, three, two, Jordan Elliott. Uh, mm. And he was somebody who didn't. So it's like a backup. Guy. Yeah. A backup tackle, but like that's it. So it's like like everybody else has missed at least one game. Miles Garrett has. You know, Miles Garrett missed two. Larry Ogunjobi missed one. Adrian Claiborne's missed a game. Malcolm Smith missed a game. B.J. Goodson just missed two. Olivier Vernon now is out for the year. Zendejo's missed two. Mac Wilson has missed three. One of them because they didn't want to play him. Carl Joseph has missed three. Denzel Ward's missed four. Kevin Johnson's missed four. Like, Ronnie Harrison's missed five. That's the thing we're talking about. They haven't had, like, the – until Vernon, like, the devastating injury like the offense did with OBJ. But it's every week somebody new was out, and you're sliding somebody new in that you didn't expect, and that's the season. So, yeah, we have not gotten a fair read on Joe Woods. Um, all right, my last thing is just the idea of my entire evaluation of the game is based on how close the Browns are to full strength, and that's based on who's going to play and how much they can practice. And I screamed about it on the picks pod, but, like, we know it's the COVID stuff. I just want to be clear. I, I might change my mind. I, I, I always say you have to make one pick and stick with it, but we do the picks pod, then we do the picks – that show up on the internet and whatever. And I'm just a little unsettled. I'm we're still gathering info. The Browns practiced on Friday. It's a miracle like that. That matters to me how I think this game is going to go. If these teams were relatively even strength and just normal football injuries, not any COVID stuff, not any practice stuff thrown off, not your coach can't coach. I'd pick the Browns. I'd pick the Browns to win. So I'm not making an excuse for myself, but I just want to, it's, it's going to be, I think this whole week has been really hard. If you're a fan and you're listening and you're trying to figure out like, what's going to happen? What are these people who are paid to cover the team? What do they think is going to happen? That's where I am there. So then my final evaluation is all based on, well, they're not full strength. So what does Kevin Stefanski's absence mean? What does the lack of practice mean? What does, is Denzel Ward going to play or not mean? Right. That's that's the only thing that's up in the air to me. Full strength, the way the Browns have played this year, the way the Steelers finished the season. I think the Browns are as good 
and in certain ways, certainly I think better than the Steelers. Not as good defensively, more explosive offensively, more balanced offensively run and pass. So I, I just like wanted to get, because we're not able to do it. Does that, I mean, it's, it's not about our frustration, but man, I would just love it. Cause the same thing is happening with Ohio state where we're trying to figure out they're playing Alabama, in the national championship game. And like Ohio state's going to miss some guys for COVID. We're not exactly sure who we're not sure how many we're not sure exactly which positions. And you're trying to figure out who's going to win. You don't even know who's going to play. But if they were all full strength, I'd like Ohio State's chances. I just don't know how many COVID cases they have. And that's the frustrating reality of this. And every Browns fan listening to this knows it. But I actually, actually have a thing I want to throw in here before I go. The only in Cleveland thing I'm about out on, by the way. Why do people – why is that a fun topic? And Dan Wetzel, the best sports columnist in America, just wrote about it this week. Only in Cleveland. It's not only in Cleveland. You know what's only in Cleveland? The greatest basketball player of his generation coming back to lead the Cavs to a title. You know what's only in Cleveland? Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez and an unbelievable pitching staff with a small market team getting into 10th inning of Game 7 of the World Series. You know what's only in Cleveland? The best teardown and rebuild in the NFL that we've seen in years, and it working. That's only in Cleveland. So keep your only in Cleveland ancient crap. It's not analysis. It's not cute. It's not helpful. It's not relevant. It's a global pandemic. Only in Cleveland crap before is actually about teams in the moment falling short. It wasn't an act of God. John Elway was good. A guy fumbled. It's not an act of God. This is a virus. This is not only in Cleveland. It's in the whole world. It's only on earth. And the Browns got some crap luck. So I'm going to mute the phrase only in Cleveland on Twitter. I hope you mute it in your life because that is not what this sports scene in this city or with this franchise is anymore. And if your analysis of the, it's bad luck. They're a great team that had bad luck. If your analysis of that is only in Cleveland, we don't need you. And if you're a fan and you feel that in your heart, I get it. You're a fan. You could do whatever you want. If you're a media member and you're going down that road, if that's your cute, you know, take a hike, man. That's not what it's about anymore. It's yeah. not. Doug, real quick, my Minnesota friends do it all the time. Minnesota sports franchises outside of the, the links have not won a, a major sports title since 1992. The Minnesota Twins miss field goals, wide lefts, it, terrible Timberwolves. The, the hockey team loses to the, the Blackhawks every year. Minnesota people say it too. So I, I think there's just something about fandoms that feel hurt and they don't express it in the best way. And I know you're, 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 you're talking about some other stuff here too, but there's just a, there's a, there's a psyche there that comes to life on Twitter for whatever reason. No, I agree. That, that story made me angry, even though the guy's a great writer, but I just had to say that I'm probably going to write it too. I think the headline's going to be like, take only in Cleveland and cram it up your cram hole. I'm working on the headline. It's a rough draft. First time I heard that was uh, was a, uh, a radio guy here in Cleveland in the early 2000s. That's the first time I heard that phrase. I assume that's where it started, but maybe I'm wrong. 
you know, yeah. it, it only it only took us 18 weeks to get Gotta Watch the Tape into not two segments, three segments, <laughs> Ellis Scott, and then Doug's rant at the end. 18 oh. weeks, we made it. <laughs> you don't know how long I've been holding this stuff back. I was like, man, where's my Doug rant segment every week? It's about numbers and film, man. I got to rant. All right. <laughs> Thanks for indulging me on that, listeners. Mm. Hey, big game on Sunday. Make sure you listen to the post-game pod. We'll put it up. I mean, it's going to be super late, but they've played a couple primetime games. We go late and it'll be up Monday morning. You'll want to listen to it. Um, and then we're not going anywhere. We got to, I don't know exactly what our plans are. I mean, as long as they're in the playoffs, we're doing two times a week, but there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff to look back on and analyze and wrap up and look forward and all this kind of stuff. So there's going to be some form of got to watch the tape moving forward, but we've appreciated everybody who's given us a chance this season. Have fun Sunday. Have a good time Sunday. You, you guys have waited for it long enough. So for Scott Patsko and Ellis Williams on Doug Maurice, thanks for diving in on Gotta watch the tape.